Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And today we're talking about monsters. We're talking about Godzilla, Mm -hmm. uh, also known as uh, Gohira. And we're talking about King Kong, and we're, we're maybe going to, well, you know, we are going to talk a little bit about Barbie. Because uh, she's a monster. Because she's a monster. And uh, most importantly, we're talking about the science of all this. But, but before we, we really dive into it, have, what is your experience with uh, with giant monsters? Well, you know, I have a three-year-old. Yes. Right. Okay. So Barney is the first thing I think of. Oh, I thought you were going to say she was like a small monster. But, oh, well, yeah, she yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is kind of funny how, actually, I'm sure to her I'm a big monster, and she actually loves for my husband and I to chase her around and yeah. sort of do the big monster arms. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure there's there are some themes going on there. But Barney but is favored. Barney, I think of as a monster. Um, I think of the Kraken, of course, one of my favorite monsters. Oh, from uh, Clash of the Titans. Yes, huh? yeah. Um, Giant Paul, Paul Bunyan. Motion. Yeah. Paul Bunyan? Was yeah. there a movie about Paul Bunyan? Or just in general, this Just stores? Paul Bunyan, like super... Giant, how come kind no, of a human, but not. How come no one ever did? Uh, I mean, that would be that would have been great to have like a purely American. I mean, I guess King, King Kong is really our American uh, giant monster, but even yeah. he's an import. Paul Bunyan, uh, well, like Paul Bunyan and his giant ox attacking like San Francisco, <laughs> like that would be right. that would be a great flick. Yeah, I know. I mean, I don't think that people think of Paul Bunyan as menacing, but I do. <laughs> I think that there's a plot line here. What about you? I mean, I grew up as a young boy, so I was very into the uh, monster f- films, especially the one I've mentioned. Uh, I think it was like uh, on TBS or something. They had the uh, the grand- Grandpa Monster hosted a uh, like a midday monster show, mm-hmm. and and they were always showing like Godzilla movies, and you know, of course, of course there are, you know, there are just tons of Godzilla movies. So it's Godzilla versus this versus that versus uh, like a, a whole cadre of, of various rubber suited villains. So, you know, I was heavy into those, and I got, then I, I, I was and am a big Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, and mm-hmm. a lot of the movies that they watched would involve giant rubber monster suits. Yeah. And, uh, and one of my favorites today, uh, which, which I won't, I won't get break into too much, but is a film called Hanuman versus Seven Ultraman. And it is a, it's an Ultraman film, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's a Thai Japanese co-production in which Hanuman, the monkey god out of Hindu mythology, uh, but also very important in Thai culture. Hanuman teams up with the Ultraman and uh, an Ultra Woman. I'm not really sure. On the, I'm, I'm, I'm more up on the Hindu mythology than Ultraman mythology. But they team up to just beat the tar out of a bunch of uh, hideous monsters that emerge from like a rocket fa- manufacturing plant or something. So it's goofy and beautiful and psychedelic and from like <laughs> yeah, the yeah. 60s or 70s. And it's it's well worth hunting down if you are, you, you too are a monster fan. But I guess what, one of the things that I'm really highlighting here is like you, silliness. Like there's definitely a large amount of silliness and fun. Like kids love Gamera. Kids love Godzilla. But if you go all the way back to 1954, Gohira, you're um, you're really looking at a different animal, especially if you're you're not you're not dealing with the Americanized version that came out, right? Uh, like Raymond Burr in it and all, and the you know different translation. But the original grim Gohira movie is a different animal entirely, right? Because I mean, this is a far more complex creature, right? Mm-hmm. The American version is, is not so much concerned about the radiation part, right? Right, right. But the Japanese version, this is a creature born of radiation and exuding radiation. Right. I mean, the whole sort of part of the mythology of an atomic test, and it brings this monster into being. But yeah, in this original one, like people were dying just from being 
near Godzilla. And, right, exposed and, to it. Right, and there are far more scenes of individuals fleeing. It's more of a disaster film than a lot of the, the subsequent Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. Lots of people fleeing, lots of people in camps, lots of people in hospitals, and lots of people dying from uh, radiation poisoning. Mm-hmm. Culturally, it's such an interesting film because you look at Japan's place in the world at the time. You know, mm-hmm. It's like we're, we're in the, the shadows of the Second World War, in the shadows of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In other incidents, Gohira references an incident involving an American thermonuclear device tested near Bikini Atoll. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the Pacific, a codename Bravo was detonated with about 2.5 times greater force than anticipated. Mm-hmm. And the fallout from the bomb it ended up enveloping this uh, tuna trawler mm-hmm. uh, named the Lucky Dragon Number 5, and it's just, just coated in like a blizzard of radioactive ash. And so the crew members then return to their home port, they're blackened, they have blistered skin, just acute radiation sickness, and, of course, and all the tuna is irradiated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was reading some, some interesting commentary on this, which I'll link to on the blog so that people can explore it further. But there's a lot of interesting commentary on how... Like this incident in particular, uh, especially on the heels of, of the Second World War, I mean, the Japanese culture is, is very concerned with hygiene. And uh, and then you have this situation where, you know, we're just radioactively contaminated and not sure what is clean anymore. And then there's also commentary to make about, in especially in subsequent Godzilla films, you see uh, Japan using all of its technological prowess to fight off an opposing force. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be argued that post-war Japan felt rather powerless uh, to a certain degree mm-hmm. in the global climate, you know, because they've just come off this disastrous armed conflict. And so their fantasy world, their fictional worlds kind of reflect this longing to be able to, to deal with problems more directly. I mean, not to limit the films to just that. It's not just a one plus one equals two situation, but but those themes are pretty strong in the, in the films. Well, I was going to say, you see that anxiety working itself out quite a bit in these films. There are 28 Godzilla films. And now, is that counting uh, the, the, the Gino movie? Uh, I Godzilla believe that only. is, and I know that that has been called an abomination. Yeah, um, and not in a good way. Like, <laughs> is this the one where the version of Godzilla uh, is, is that he's a, a lizard whose yeah, like DNA gets messed with because of a, a nuclear meltdown and mm-hmm. scatters it and becomes a monster, which is kind of, I mean. I mean, I know that, you know, Godzilla is uh, far-fetched anyway, but, I mean, you couldn't make it any more far-fetched with that premise, right? Right. But, yeah, 28 films. And from what I understand, too, Godzilla, you know, at first is a very menacing figure, Mm -hmm. right, is the embodiment of of, uh, the problems of nuclear energy, Mm -hmm. nuclear warfare. And then... He comes to later on represent somewhat of a hero or at least take on this part of as someone who is is helping the people. And, in fact, they have different versions of Godzilla versus this, Godzilla versus that, Godzilla versus the smog monster. Yeah, so fighting uh, ecological problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, You you see, especially in the famous King Kong versus Godzilla, which is, you know, Mm. interpromotional dream match there. Right. This is really on a slightly removed scale. This is U.S. versus Japan again. And each country's cut has a slightly different preference in who's the uh, superior super monster. But then in later films, Godzilla becomes not only a champion of Japan, but a champion of Earth itself, defending Earth against various catastrophes. And Mm -hmm. uh, and then Godzilla's kin uh, do the same. Like Gamera is always protecting the planet, protecting children, which I think is kind of beautiful. Again, it's kind of the idea that these uh, we create, especially in the original Godzilla, Gohira, we create this avatar of all our all the worst possibilities of humanity. Yeah, this frightening thing, and then we're able to transform it into something positive, into into like a strength. I don't know. I guess you could make the argument too that it's kind of casting the warnings aside and forgetting what made it potent to begin with. But 
Yeah, but again, I think it's so, this is where, you know, art, movies, paintings, everything that sort of allows us to work out these anxieties mm-hmm. comes into play. And in fact, NPR had a story this morning that was talking about Fukushima a year later, um, you know, the, the oh, yes. earthquake, the tsunami, and, um, and then the subsequent, you know, meltdown of the three reactors. Uh, and that, you know, the real problem right now, a year later, isn't so much the radiation levels, which really aren't as bad as they initially thought, because mm-hmm. much of them were swept away by the winds out over the uh, Pacific, but more that it's, it's a psychological problem, because, again, you have this long history with, with uh, you know, nuclear materials, Japan, and this distrust. And a year later, people are still not quite sure if they feel, you know, like they're on terra firma. Just, you know, with their government, with their food supplies. Right. And it's just, it's kind of interesting. So they were saying that that is not a culture that really invests a lot into to mental health. I mean, they mm-hmm. have, you know, obviously you can go and you get medical attention, but it's not so much geared toward mental health. So there's not so much an outlet there. King Kong, on the other hand, there's there's not... I don't know. He's not quite as deep. As no, Godzilla. no. I mean, this is what the 1933 that King Kong comes yeah. on the scene. And people have pointed to King Kong and said that, you know, definitely King Kong embodies um, sort of the naivete of, of American society and especially um, concerning race relations mm-hmm. at that time. But, yeah, King Kong. Because he's this foreign threat, this subhuman threat. And you can sort of. Comes from an exotic place. Exotic place. He wants to steal women and <laughs> climb buildings. <laughs> right. and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess if you look at King Kong from that standpoint, he's kind of awful. Like, he's also kind of an avatar of awfulness. Just maybe in his in initial inception, they weren't as conscious of it. Whereas right. Gohira is obviously, the themes are a lot more prevalent and, and on the surface, whereas King Kong, the awfulness is kind of hidden. And yet in King Kong, in this story, you're meant to feel empathy for this creature, right? Right. So you're, it, you're hmm. to fear him, but you also are to empathize with him, right? Because here he is, he's the last survivor of species, he's lived on Skull Island his entire life, he's a beautiful girl, uh, you know, he tries to... to I don't know, make out with her or whatever. And then he is essentially enslaved, brought to New York, right. and made to perform on Broadway. I know. I always forget about that portion of the uh, the story. And then, and then, of course, the whole building thing and the airplane. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a sad story. Uh, the remake of that was a lot more in keeping with, uh, I guess, the spirit of the original. The, Though, is that the Jessica Lange one? Oh, there were no. There were a couple of remakes. That's right. There's one that there was like a 80s version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that one was... I think that one was just kind of weird. I don't know if anyone has any real love for that film outside of maybe a you know cheesy enthusiasm. But then uh, Peter Jackson. Did oh, that's movie. right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which my my only problems with that one is a it seemed I think that movie's like six hours long or something. Mm-hmm. Like it's awfully long for King Kong. And also I remember it, it just had some really like over. I mean I love dark imagery as much as the next person. But, uh, like, this is King Kong, and there's this scene where these, like, all these horrible giant insect monsters I are, like, eating that. people, and giant slugs are, like, sucking people's faces uh-huh, off. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is a bit dark, Jackson. Um, well, it was filler, to your point. I mean, you can't really make a film that long with the premise of King Kong, you know? Yeah. But, but still, it was over long. Like, everything was, do- like, like they're like, King Kong, let's do this, except we're going to, it's going to be King Kong on steroids. In the original, he fights one dinosaur, this time he's going to fight two dinosaurs. You know? That's right. That's right. So, all right. So let, let's uh, let's throw some science on these beasts. Yeah. First, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll cease babbling about the culture behind these monsters and so forth, and we'll start talking about the science behind gigantic animals and uh, whether it's even possible. 
All right, so we're back, and it's time to get into the morphological limits of giant monsters. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so here's here's just something that's a basic, okay? Okay. All right, so if you're going to create something that's bigger than mm-hmm. the original, uh, the weight as a function of their volume is going to increase dramatically faster than does the surface area right. of this creature. This is important to remember because this has a lot of important consequences. Um, so basically, it's that if you are going to double something's size and keep its proportions the same, the weight doesn't double or even quadruple. It actually increases by a factor of eight. Okay. Okay. So when we we're talking about King Kong, we we're talking about a gorilla that is super giant, right? Mm-hmm. And when we we're talking about Godzilla, we are talking about a dinosaur hybrid. Yeah. That is gigantic. It runs on both gas and, and electric. That's right. He does have some electric properties, seemingly. Which around. doesn't make any sense with the flames and the yeah. radioactivity. I mean, there's a lot going on there, but anyway. Well, radioactive firestorms. I mean, that's part of the whole nuclear apocalypse scenario. You I know? know, but like you see the ridges on his back start to get electrified, and then the, the fire comes out of his mouth, and yet at the same time he's always exuding radiation. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's a lot of port for one fork. Yeah, well, Gamera has it coming out both ends. So, because well, yeah. you've seen Gamera, right? The big turtle, he can retract his back two legs, and then fire comes out, and he flies around. But I was gonna make like a, a little gas joke there. Uh, the, I should have the eight-year-old in, boy in me. Yeah, I should have brought in my Gamera toy to uh, help us with this. But I'm getting off track, gadding about monsters. Uh, another way to look at this mask thing that I really like is the spherical cow analogy. All right, so the shape of an animal can be a little complex, and it's uh, simpler if you look at something like a cow and look at the cow and imagine it as just a sphere, like the the, the mass mm-hmm. is reduced to a sphere of cowness, okay? And then imagine increasing the size of that uh, that mass. All right, and again, the volume increases more rapidly than the surface area. So if you double the radius of the sphere, the surface area increases four times, and the volume increases eight times. That uh, Again, mm-hmm. like you said, you double something size, and, and if it keeps the same proportions, the weight doesn't double or even quadruple. It increases eightfold. So you have something like King Kong, right, who is 30 feet high in, in the film, mm-hmm. five times the size of a real gorilla, and his proportions are more or less the same. Yeah. If you were to take an actual gorilla and you were to blow it up like that, in a, you know, honey, I blew up the kid's fashion. The creature would not be able to stand. Its legs would break, basically. Right, it would crush under its own weight. Its bones couldn't support it. We're talking about 30 feet high, right. about 25 tons, right? Yeah. yeah. I was reading an interesting commentary about the size of animals and how the size of something is very much, I mean, it's it's not just a matter of, oh, this is a big one and this is a little one. Yes, there are there's certain amount to be said about dwarfism versus mm-hmm. gigantism in uh, organisms, but but take something like a whale. Like a, a whale is large, a whale is massive, and its mass allows it, among other things, to keep warm in chilling waters. Right. If you were to reduce a blue whale to the size of a minnow, it would not be able to stay warm. Its size is, is part of its function. It would actually have to consume far more right. uh, for energy, right? Yeah, to that's, that's why you warm. have things like mice and other small animals that are just so ravenous that have an endless hunger because they're having to uh, keep up their metabolism. Yep. Yeah. So when you're looking at King Kong, you're talking about a creature that's 125 times heavier than an original gorilla, Mm -hmm. right? And you also have the problem that relative to the size, King Kong has only 25 times the surface area of an ape's skin. Right. And this is important because on top of that, you have fur that is five times as thick as a real gorilla. Because he needs to lose excess heat. He's metabolizing mm-hmm. like, like other mammals to keep warm. Right. He's metabolizing. He needs to lose that excess heat, but he has less skin to lose it through and more fur that's insulating him. 
Right, so it's a lot harder to wick off that heat, right? Right. Uh, so, I mean... He would have to shave constantly. <laughs> and then that still might not do it. A hairless King Kong, yeah. which would completely change that storyline, I think. But, I mean, just think about that. If he were, he were to try to do any sort of normal movements, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, he would collapse again under the weight of... Um, of himself, but also he would probably collapse because he wouldn't be able to, again, get rid of the heat. Mm-hmm. And so he would just be in a jumbled mess. He wouldn't be able to get the girl and climb to the top of the Empire State Building. Right. Another thing to note uh, about the legs, again, he would need larger leg bones. Mm-hmm. He would just need bigger legs in general. And he would probably need a different gait. You know, instead of having like right. eight light uh, bendy knees, he would need more of a, a straight legged type of movement, which would probably limit his ability to climb skyscrapers. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's talk about one husky boy here, Godzilla. Godzilla. Well, Godzilla has a kind of a leg up on the situation on one hand because he's yeah because he's cold blooded uh, or, or I don't know presumably he is cold blooded. Um, and in the American version, oh uh, well, who knows in the American okay. version that doesn't count. Presumably, Godzilla is uh, is cold blooded, not mm-hmm. counting the the nuclear fires brewing in his belly, and. Uh, <laughs> And we look back to the dinosaurs, and uh, these are clearly a great example of a large creature that was, A, probably cold-blooded. Uh, you know, the jury's kind of still yeah, out on some that, of that. Yeah. But, um, but presumably cold-blooded, uh, for the sake of this argument, and was walking around on land. Uh, some of these guys were quite huge. And while we, we used to think that some of these different uh, sauropods were, were walking around in the muck or in the water to help, uh, you know, to boy them, to boy them up, but especially you know, so. if they if they were to make love, right, right, or to propagate yeah, we, their yeah, species. That's right. We talked about that in the dinosaurs. I sex. should say propagate their species, but yeah, if they were going to make out, knock boots, whatever, mm-hmm. there was always that question of how do they actually do this because right. they are so weighty. Um, and in in Godzilla's case, we are talking about sixty thousand tons, right? Like right. the size of a battleship. Yeah, and he does emerge from the ocean. That's worth noting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back to battleship. That's another uh, interesting example I ran across. If you took a battleship out of the water and put it on land. Mm-hmm. Like, it would, to what extent would it fall apart? Because it doesn't have water holding it. Right, up. right. But, okay, so the dinosaurs. For a while, we, we had thought that they that some of these larger models were having to stay in the water all the time to support their weight. A lot of the, uh, the footprint uh, information that we have now, the fossilized prints, indicate that they were walking around, at least in the mud, you know, and th- therefore were capable of land movement. Mm-hmm. Maybe even running as fast as, say, an elephant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like three miles per hour, I think. But here's the thing. In addition to having really thick legs like a Kong or a Godzilla would need. They also walked around on four, right? which, is again, is an enormous help. And Godzilla is walking around on two. Well, especially if you're thinking about the heart and pumping blood, yeah, right? Yeah, that's another key thing, because yeah. your brain needs some of that blood. Yeah, and you, we've, uh, you know, sauropods have been somewhat of a mystery in that respect, too, right? Because mm-hmm. they have really long necks and they have huge bodies. And so you're talking about pumping blood from one end of a 200-meter-long body to the other, and that's a lot of pressure. So if you're Godzilla, you know, in order to resist that kind of pressure, your arteries near your heart would have to be made out of steel, you yeah. know, and so that your your heart didn't burst. Yeah, like even giraffes, we've talked about uh, mm-hmm. about this, their hearts have to produce very high pressure to force the blood all the way to their brains. And uh, way back, one of our first few podcasts uh, together, we talked about uh, exploding heads. Yeah. And remember there was the, um, some people were asking, well, well, how come, uh, the giraffe's head doesn't explode when it bends down to drink? There's actually, they have a cluster of arteries and veins that divert the blood flow under the right circumstances to equalize the blood pressure. Yeah, they've got adaptions yeah. for that. But the blood pressure involved in some of these, uh, these dinosaurs, these long-necked, uh, sauropods is, uh, like we're, we're looking at like eight times what would we encounter in a normal animal. Right. So something like Godzilla, uh, or, or King Kong, 
they would have to have tremendous blood pressure, uh, like you said, to, to just to keep the brain active. Right. Or, or you know, maybe <laughs> maybe they just get dizzy every once in a while, and that's well, why they're sw- swiveling around the cities and yeah. destroying everything. Well, that's, that's I'm glad that you mentioned dizziness because that's one way to get a quick idea of what this what we're talking about with the blood to the brain. Lay down. For a few minutes and then get up really quick. But you not know? right now. Not right now. Because I don't. We don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you could be on a bus, on a train, walking. But that feeling that you get when you get up really quick and you're like, "Ooh, I'm so dizzy." That's because uh, you've uh, your position has changed. The blood has to get to your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine if you were even taller; it would be even more of an issue. So that's uh, another thing to take into consideration with these giant animals: is how's the blood flow going to work? How are they going to get blood to their brain? We're dealing with a whole new set of engineering problems. Here's another sticking point. Okay. Godzilla's skin. Yes. Okay. It has to be somehow strong enough to resist bullets, variety of munitions, but yet flexible enough to move around. Ah. Right. So, I mean, that's uh, that that's some serious engineering right there. It is, yeah. And nanotechnology wasn't even, you know, in existence in 1954. <laughs> um, and then uh, another key issue to keep in mind with the animal size is that uh, – you have to ask yourself, like, why why are animals as big as they are, and why do they remain that way? Well, um, like, size evolution has a lot to do with uh, the arms race between prey and predators and uh, surviving various environments. Like, there has to be a reason for something to be that big. And granted, Godzilla kind of gets by with the whole, uh, oh, it's a mutation, or it's, you know, ancient ancient animal from a previous ecosystem uh, plus radiation equals something that doesn't quite make sense. King Kong has less of an excuse because he's just living on an island somewhere, right? Right. And does he really have an environment, an ecosystem that supports his size? I mean, granted, there are like dinosaurs on Skull Island, and presumably he's eating some of those, right? But Yeah, but if he's the largest and more, most fierce, too, I mean, he doesn't have a natural predator that he needs to be really that large and dominate anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's like when we were talking about super predators, especially, uh, this was us, wasn't it? Or I feel like we were talking about this in a past podcast about... Could have been our doppelgangers. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Oh, their, their podcast, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mind to blow Don't your... mention it. Oh, yeah. Don't. Yeah. Okay. But uh, if you think of, like, any kind of super predator, especially, like, these prehistoric super predators, like mm-hmm. these giant, like, super sharks, super tyrannosaur-type creatures, uh, imagine them as kings atop a pyramid of bones, there at the very yeah, top, yeah. and th- that pyramid gets wider uh, as you reach the ground because those are all the layers of food that have to support them. Like the, the lowest layer, of course, is like plants, and then there are a whole bunch of things that eat those plants, and then things that eat those animals, and then things that eat those animals. And at the very top, you have this, this lofty king of all things. The environment can only support so many of those guys, mm-hmm. and there are limits to what they can support. What they can give. Right, and what right. they can give. So. So that's another thing you have to ask about, especially like a King Kong or anything that lives on a monster island, is to what extent could the ecosystem possibly support an animal of this well, size? And how, how long could it support it before, you know, King Kong wiped out everything? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, he's not very sustainable. That's the thing. Yep. So he, he's a perfect uh, symbol for uh, American culture. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, he's, he's a good uh, symbol for gluttony, for sure. Bob, but another symbol of American culture. Right. It's the same. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Another beast. Um, what we're talking about is the blonde-haired giant menace, Barbie. <laughs> uh, since 2007, Galia Slayan, now a student at Hamilton College, unveils a monster she created for the purpose of showing um, uh, people the the sort of uh, body dysmorphia present in the Barbie doll, Mm -hmm. and she presents this at the National Eating Disorder Awareness uh, Week at different events, 
It is a life-size Barbie that she created. And I'm just going to throw some stats out there. Um, if Barbie were an actual woman, she, okay. okay, she would be five foot nine. That's a reasonable height for a lady. Yeah, yeah. She would have a 39-inch bust. Now, okay, in these times of uh, padding, mm-hmm. maybe that doesn't seem too huge. But just think about it. That, that really is quite large. Well, it's uh, more like on par with maybe Dolly Parton. Okay, okay. So Dolly Parton is a good frame of reference for that. Okay. Yeah. An 18-inch waist, which is insane. Like, who would that be on par with? That would be Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind, and she was corseted to a 19-inch waist. And oh, that's insane okay. because she's super petite. Okay, okay so we're so talking I think, petite woman corseted to the, the point of passing out. Yeah, so okay. think about, the, like, your typical hourglass dimensions would be, you know, like 34, 24, 34. Mm-hmm. 34 being the hips, 24 being the waist, 34 being the bust. Okay, so here we have Barbie, 5'9", 39, bust. 18-inch waist, and 33 hips. Okay, so very slender hips. And a size 3 shoe. Okay. Now, of course, with all the other Godzilla and King Kong proportions, you know, that doesn't seem too crazy. But again, you know, these, when we get the Godzilla dolls, or I should say toys, rather, Mm -hmm. or King Kong toys, we don't actually think of them as fashioned after ourselves, whereas Barbie is fashioned after a, a female human. So at 5'9 tall and weighing 110 pounds, Barbie would have a body fat index of 16.24, and she uh, likely would not menstruate because of this. And if she were a real woman, she would have to walk on all fours <laughs> due to her <laughs> proportions. And I just thought this was fascinating. Slumber Party Barbie was introduced in 1965 and came with a bathroom scale permanently set at 110 pounds with a book entitled How to Lose Weight with directions inside stating simply, don't eat. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. That is, this is the most monstrous thing we've discussed in the podcast. Uh-huh. And there are two Barbie dolls sold every second in the world. Wow. Now that is world domination, my friend. Yeah, I, I far better that a, a little girl, a little boy would want to grow up and be uh, Godzilla. I think. I, I mean, think you can a, breathe fire. I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty cool. You're turning your 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 weaknesses into strengths. Mm-hmm. You're standing up for the environment, for for nation, for planet, for uh, little kids. I mean, all that. Yeah. Barbie just wants to lose weight and not learn math. So. Yeah, yeah, but you know, just a little fun like uh, talk about uh, the limits of of human. Uh, I guess you could say. Uh, proportions. Here's something I want to throw out to the, the listeners. I wonder, has any work of fiction actually tackled uh, giant creatures in a more believable manner, uh, like taking into account the physics? Because uh, I, I generally the, that's off the table uh, with these. And, and I'm not complaining because I enjoy them, but like the only example I can think of offhand is that there's a book by uh, the author Michael Shea, who's a fabulous sci-fi horror and dark fantasy writer and he, he wrote these books about uh, this character Nifteline and he's always going on these like he, the guy is like super into uh, Dante's Inferno and the sex lives of insects so he's definitely an author after my own heart he writes these tales about these characters going into the underworld and, and there's uh, there's one w- uh, episode where a guy has to bring back this uh, elixir that these giant underworld insects use to, to, to feed their larvae and he brings mm-hmm. it up and they feed it to bees with this scheme, they're going to grow giant bees, and then they're going to have lots of honey. And, of course, the bees then get so big they can't fly, and they're just rolling around. Right. 
and a human ends up taking some of this, and he gets so big, he's just in constant pain, and he's just rolling around, and he doesn't like fall apart or any or anything, but he ends up having to like crawl into the ocean to support his weight. Ah, uh, much like a dinosaur, yeah. uh, knocking boots. Yeah, and then I think he gets like, I forget what happens to him, but if you want to read more about it, uh, check out the work of Michael Shea. He's quite fabulous. Uh, and do tell us what you think about giant animals, giant monsters, and again, if you find any in, uh, in fiction that actually make a little bit of scientific sense, let us know. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Blow the Mind, one word. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.